Um, we have been kind of going through the, the book of Acts, kind of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? They're kind of the gospels of like what Jesus has done, his life, his death, his resurrection. And then the, the book of Acts is basically the beginning of the story of like, like what now God is doing in the world after he's ascended into heaven. He's, he's birthed the church. He sent his Holy Spirit to us. And basically what's happening is like, so much stuff is happening. Like the spirit has come and it's like this amazing thing. And like the apostles are like filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and they're proclaiming the, the cross of Jesus Christ, but also proclaiming his resurrection. And, and it says that like great grace is just like sitting over the early church. There's thousands of people who've come to know Jesus. There's thousands of people who had their lives changed. This is now a movement. This isn't just like a small group of people in an upper room anymore. This is like a massive group of people who've all experienced the grace of God and has changed their life. And there's this moment in Acts 4 where like the, the story is going forward and it's like, it is exciting, it is awesome. And, and you start to see these barriers come up that like Satan is trying to like thwart like the movement of God, right? He doesn't want people to be part of Jesus' kingdom. He wants people to be part of his kingdom. And so he starts bringing persecution, right? And so he's like, okay, we're gonna kind of shut this down through power, right? But then God's people, they don't care, right? Last week, they're convinced of this. They're courageous. And so they stand up and they say, we're not gonna stop speaking about this, even if you take our lives from us. And so that doesn't work. That's not gonna stop the movement of the church. And so Satan's next tactic is not to try to bring some power against it, but it's actually to try to destroy it from the inside. Not through like an outside power that he's going to kind of stop the movement of the gospel. What Satan's going to try to do is like poison it from the inside out. And so what ends up happening is you have this story. So I want you to just picture it like a Sunday morning or like some gathering of, of Christians and docks of church, like we're hanging out, we are gathered together. It's like the grace of God is over this place. Like we're speaking about his presence. We're lifting our hands in worship and we're taking communion together. And it's like, we're doing the holy things of God together as a response to this unbelievable grace. And then all of a sudden, as someone comes up to take communion or someone stands at the front and begins to sing a song and lead us in worship, all of a sudden, the hand of God drops that person to the floor dead. Just kills them. And, and the, the story in the text today is a story of God doing that. It's like it is grace and it is the resurrection of Jesus and it is an unbelievable, exciting thing. But God sees people in his church starting to take the church in a direction that he is not okay with. And so he stops it. And the way he stops that direction isn't just by kind of pushing them back in the right way, but it's actually by taking the people who are doing this and killing them. And the result of that is actually the early church stood in fear and awe of the God of grace. And, and I, wanna, I wanna show you this story. Um, I'm not gonna really tell any funny jokes today or I'm, I'm not gonna try to make this like a really like happy Sunday because I, I think the thing that is supposed to happen is that this, this story shook up the early church. And I think as we're here gathered together and saying what does it look like for us to be a new church together, I think this story is supposed to shake us up as well. This is Acts 4 starting in verse 32. It says, now the full number of those who believed, they were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many of them as were owners of land or houses, they, they sold them and they laid it at the apostles' feet. They laid all the proceeds that was sold at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did not remain your own, and even after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and, and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And, and so Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet who have buried your husband, they are at the door. And they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. This is a, this is a crazy story. It's a crazy story, um, not just because it's uncomfortable, but it's a crazy story because it's actually really hard to, to know what we're supposed to do with it, right? There's two different people and, and one of them sells their land and, and lays their money, like all of their money down at the feet of the apostles. And he will end up being like one of the leaders of the church. Like this is Barnabas. We're gonna read about later in the story. And he even gets like a nickname, right? They're like, you're not just Joseph, you're Barnabas, like the son of encouragement. But there's this, this other couple who sells their land and lays down almost all of the money at the feet of the apostles, and God kills them. One person gives everything, the other person gives almost everything, but the point of the story is that even though the difference between these two postures of heart seems like really, really small, the point of the story is that it's not small, but it's actually the difference between life and death. And so the question is, what is the difference between these two people? Right, that should be the, the question we ask as we read this story as, as kind of this new church docs, we should ask, what is the difference between these two people in the early church and how do we make sure to not be like the ones that get dropped dead by God? What is it about Ananias and Sapphira that so angers God that he just strikes them dead where they are standing? And this has actually been a really hard passage to study. I'm just gonna like put that like, this has been hard for me to figure out like the answer to this question because it's not immediately obvious. It's hard to know what we're supposed to do with it. It's not immediately obvious what the difference between these people are. But the more I've studied the story, I think that's actually intentional. Because the story, it's not trying to give us two different pictures of two completely opposite people and say, don't be like this, be like this. What it does is it shows us that two people who look really, really similar 
to the eyes of all of those around them can look completely different in the eyes of God. Completely different in the eyes of God. Two groups of people, almost the exact same actions, but as we dig into the story, we're gonna find that actually their hearts couldn't be further from each other. Okay, I wanna look at this first group. First group, let's go to verse 32 and look at it says. It says, now the full number of those who believe, they were of one heart and one soul. There's this like kind of unification that they have. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, right? And so you have the apostles and they're, they're proclaiming the resurrection. Great grace is on all of them. And, but it says that there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses, they actually sold them and they brought all the proceeds kind of into the church and they just made a pile of it. And anyone that had need was provided for. And I want to just like really quickly make, make a point, okay? There was no poverty in the early church. Like that's stunning. And we should be like, like amazed by that. There was no poverty in the early church. No one couldn't pay their bills. No one went hungry. There were no needy people, but everyone had their needs provided for. There's no society in the history of the world that has ever eliminated poverty. And when the Holy Spirit falls on people, he figures that out in like two weeks, okay? Like that's amazing. And, and it tells you how this happened. And it doesn't, Holy Spirit doesn't solve with some strict system of rules or kind of this new political system. It, it solves it by changing the way people thought about the stuff that was theirs. Like did, did, you, did you catch that, right? It's like how, how did it change their view of their personal property. Well, the way the Holy Spirit changed their view of their personal property was so that they would stop thinking of it as their personal property. <laughs> they didn't say the stuff in their house was theirs. They just assumed it was God's. And if it's God's, why don't we share it with God's family? And Jesus actually tells a parable about this, right? Matthew 25 tells a parable about the kingdom of heaven and Jesus says that the king of heaven is, is like a master who goes on like a really long journey. And what he does is he entrusts to his servants some of his property. And so one, he gives two talents. Another one, he gives a little more. Another one, he gives like 10 talents. So he gives like different bits of property, different bits of money, different servants. And Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is going to be like this story where one day the master is going to return. And he's going to come to his servants and he's going to, it says it's going to settle accounts with them. And he says, that, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what this world is like. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying that the things that we view as ours, our property, our money, our things, our time, what Jesus is saying is that these aren't really our things, but they have been given to us on loan by God. And there will come a day where he will return to settle accounts with us. And the question is whether we've been a good servant and a good steward of God's things or have we used these things for his interest and his business, or have we used them for ours? And so the question is, how do we view the things that God has given us? Because when grace comes into this community of believers in the early church, it changed the way they viewed their things. How do we view the things in our lives, do we consider them ours or do we consider them God's? Are we good stewards of those things? Because how you view your things, it will absolutely determine what you do with them. It will absolutely determine what you do with them. If you think that your money is your hard-earned money, that is your personal property, I guarantee you that you will not be generous with it like you would if you looked at your bank account and go, oh my gosh, all of this is God's. 
and he's given it to me. And he has goals and desires of how I would spend it. And then so this first group, they're, they're having this change about the way they view their things, their time. But then it zooms in on this one guy. This one guy, Joseph. I, w- I want you to look at him. Verse 36. It says, this Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here's a question. Why does it single out this one person, right? Because every, everyone's doing this. Everyone who has land is selling it. Everyone who kind of has a house is, they're like liquidating their assets. It's a very strange thing that's happening, but everyone is kind of doing it. And so why does it single out this one person? Why do we hear his story? Well, I think the reason is because he's a Levite. He's a Levite. It says that. He is a Levite. And if you got stuck in your Bible reading plan, like somewhere in, in Genesis, right? Like you didn't get to Exodus and you surely didn't get to Leviticus. You're like, what is a Levite? <laughs> like, why, do I, why does this matter? Well, for the people who are reading this story, like they, they had this category in their head. And so let me kind of help, like, like help us see what we're supposed to see when we read that word Levite. Well, in, in the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel, Right? 12 tribes, like the 12 sons of, of Jacob. And, and basically what would happen is when God is saying, hey, I'm gonna lead you into the promised land and every single tribe, every son, kind of his lineage would receive some of the land of the promised land. So the tribe of Judah, like this is your area, this is your region and, and you, this land is your land and it will be in your family forever. And the tribe of Benjamin, you're kind of over here. And so everyone had a certain allotment of land, and, and this land was, was special because even if you sold it or you had, like, you, you had some bad thing happen to you and your family and all of a sudden you don't have the land, eventually it would get put back to you. And so you basically had this safety net where no matter what happened in life, you had a place, you had a home, you had a safety net, you had land. But the tribe of Levi, Levites, they didn't have land. They were the one group that didn't have any land and actually their role was different than all the others because they had the priestly role. They weren't to take care of their land, they were to take care of the temple. And and, and so what this text is basically saying is something like this. It means that that this Levite wasn't able to buy land for himself or sorry, what it means is that he didn't have like land in his lineage, okay? So what it means is like when it's saying that he sold his land, it's like a really big deal because for any Levite to have land at all basically meant that like he had something that very few other Levites had and he didn't have a safety net. And so I think what this story is doing is it's trying to show us that what he is doing is it's like he's laying down before the feet of the apostles everything he has. He doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have a safety net. He doesn't like, well, I've got like these two apartment complexes and I'm pretty set, so I'm gonna liquidate one of them and I'll give that to God. No, it's like he, he gave up everything he had. He had no plan B. What marked this man is that he cared more about the kingdom of God than anything this world had to offer. I think that's what the, the story is trying to tell us. Like he took the words of Jesus seriously in Matthew 6 where he says, don't think about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or even how you'll clothe yourself, but actually just seek first the kingdom of God and your father in heaven will give you all the things that you need. And so he's received the grace of God and it has absolutely changed his life. He has this radical generosity. Everything I have pushed into the pot, I wanna follow Jesus. That's how he responds to the grace of God. But then you have the second group, a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and they sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he keeps back for himself some of the proceeds, and he brings only a part of it, and he lays that part at the feet of the apostles. 
But when he does this, Peter starts talking to him, right? And he says, Ananias, like, why have you contrived this thing in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Like, why have you done that? And then eventually you see Ananias drop dead, right? And then three hours later, his wife comes back in and Peter asks her and just says, hey, the money that you laid at my feet, was that all the money? Are you all in? Did you give everything? And she says, yes. And she drops dead. And the men who buried her husband come in to bury her as well. They only lay down most of the money, but they keep from for themselves. And when they do this, God kills them. And so here's the question, what did they do? Well, the thing that they did is this. They did come and lay down money from the sale of the land. And it's true they didn't lay down all of it. They cut back some from themselves. But the question is, what is the point of the story? Like what, like what are we supposed to do with this? Is the point that we're supposed to sell everything we have and, and lay it before Rob? <laughs> you know, like Is that the point? Because, because honestly, there's a reading of this that seems like that's what we're supposed to do. Because one couple did this. One guy did this, and he's alive. And the other couple didn't. He's dead. His wife's dead. So the question is, like, is that the point of the story? Well, I don't think that's the point. I don't think it's about how much they gave. I think it's about how they gave it. What they were doing was they were giving the appearance that they were giving everything to God when they were actually only giving part. Okay, that, that's the thing, right? Because he says, like, he comes and asks, like, you know, Peter asks her, like, is this, is this what you're doing? Because you're putting on a facade for everyone to see. Is that really what's going on? And she says, yes. Right, so that, that's the issue that's going on. They were giving the appearance they were giving everything to God when they were only giving part. They're trying to get people around them to think that they are more generous than they actually are. That's what they were doing, okay? And, and here's the scary part of that. I think we do that all the time, don't we? Yeah, amen, and a very like trembled voice, amen, <laughs> right? Because fear falls on this early church. And the reason fear falls on this church is because I think they looked at what they were doing and everyone kind of subtly in their heart recognized, oh, I had the plan to do almost the exact same thing. They're living this kind of calculated and purposeful way that the people around them should have a higher view of them than is actually true. Do you do that? I don't just mean like ever, have you ever done that? But I mean like, is that a regular pattern of your life? Do you try to put on this facade so that the other people of God see you as a more holy person than you really are? And this thing gets more, this is one thing to do this out in the world, but it is a totally different thing to do this in the holy presence of the people of God. Because out there in the world, you are dealing with people, but in the church, you are dealing with God and his holiness, and his presence. And my guess is that these two people did this all the time out in the world, and they never dropped dead, but as soon as they come into the holy presence of God and his people, and they do it there, God says, no. No. I don't know about you, but when I started to read this, the fear that fell on the early church just started to fall on me. Because I do this. When I confess my sin or I get vulnerable about my life, I have a tendency to kind of cut the sharp corners off my confession, right? If I did this, I'll tell people I did this. It's like I'm, I'm almost 
confessing all of my sin. And I'm almost living this completely transparent and vulnerable life, but I have a tendency to do things in such a way that makes me look a little better to the people around me than I actually am. And that's what they're doing. It's exactly what they're doing. But what did this thing they're doing reveal about them? They did lie about how much they sold their property for. They did say they were giving everything when they were holding something back. But why did they do that? They did it because they cared more about what the people around them thought of them than what God thought of them. It's really simple. They cared more about what people thought of them than what God thought of them. And here's where the story gets really interesting because they're concerned about people. They care about people. They want Peter's approval. They want a cool nickname like Barnabas has. They want to be seen as great in the eyes of all the other people of God. They're concerned about people. They want praise from people. But who does it say that they lied to? God. The Holy Spirit. You haven't actually lied to man. You've lied to God. I think that one of the reasons that God puts this story right in the beginning of the story of the first church is so that we would not be confused about who we're dealing with when we join together as the people of God. I think he puts the story here so we wouldn't be confused about the one that we are dealing with when we gather together to try to like seek after his presence. Because in the Old Testament, the people of God, they were not as confused as we are about the holiness of God, right? In fact, they were terrified by it, right? When God meets his people at Mount Sinai, as the cloud of fire and light and envelops the top of the mountain, God tells his people that they can't even touch the mountain that his presence dwells on, and they can't even go near it, because if they do, they will die. It isn't that they can't just come into his presence, but if they just touch the mountain, if they come near the mountain that his presence is touching, they're going to fall on their face as though dead. God is so holy. He is so bright and blindingly perfect that when imperfect, unholy people come into the proximity of his presence, they are consumed by it. And there was one day a year, right, after God sets up the temple, there was one day a year when the high priest would be able to enter into the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies. Only one day, the Day of Atonement. And this priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the priest closest to the presence of God And this priest would go in and he would go to sprinkle the blood of lambs in the Holy of Holies as a sacrifice for all of God's people. But before he went in, there were all these rituals. There were all these washings and sacrifices the priest had to do even to consider walking behind that curtain. And even after having done all of these things, all this preparation, preparing for this day when one man, just one, like the best of all of them, the highest of the priests would go in on behalf of the people, what they would do is they would tie a rope around his waist and they would hold the other side of this rope as this man would trembling walk into the presence of God. He'd pull apart this two inch curtain and he would walk into the presence of God. And the reason they tied this rope on him was because if he had not perfectly atoned for his sins and he had not followed the commands of God perfectly leading up to that moment, then they would hear his body hit the floor. He would die. And what they would use the rope for is so they could pull his body out of the presence of God because they can't go get him because if they do, they too will drop dead. That's how holy God is. 
He is not like us. He is perfect. His brightness is so enveloping that when you come into the presence of it, you are burned up like you are standing on the surface of the sun. And God kills these two arrogant people so that we would not be confused about who we're dealing with when we walk into church on a Sunday morning. He doesn't want us to be confused. In Acts 2, we see the story of the Holy Spirit coming on this group of believers, right? We taught this just a few weeks ago. Well, what happens in that moment? Well, what happens in that moment is that the fire of God's presence that sat on top of the mountain, the pillar of fire that comes in to fill the Holy of Holies of the temple, that fire came to rest above the heads of every Christian in the room. What Jesus did on the cross was he created a way for sinful, broken people to enter into a relationship and enter into the presence of God once again. And instead of being killed by it, they'd be saved by it. The reason these people can have the Holy Spirit of God dwell in their midst and not be consumed is because the blood of Jesus has been shed for them. And what this whole passage is saying is that that is not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to be dismissed that we stand in the presence of God and it's safe, right? Just because we're not at Mount Sinai and the ground is not radiating out towards us of the glory of God, and just because we do not always walk in this room utterly terrified, and when we meet for a connection group, you walk in with fear for your life, just because that is not the case doesn't mean we should take it lightly. Because the only reason it's not the case, the only reason that's not our experience here on a Sunday morning is because Jesus' blood has been shed. It's because there is great grace that is sitting over this place. But when these two people, they come into the holy presence of God's people, they walk right up to the apostle and they bow low as though they're giving reverence and honor to God. And they lay their money at his feet as though they're responding to the grace of God with worship. But what they're really doing is they're taking the grace of God and they're trampling it under their feet and they're abusing it so that the people around them will worship them. I want you to look at what Hebrews 10 says. This is a terrifying passage but I think it's written as almost a direct response to these people. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, this is Hebrews 10, 19, through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And then it kind of talks about the church and it says this, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment 
and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? I can't think of any people that this text is more applicable to than Ananias and Sapphira. Here's what he's saying. He's saying if you take the grace of God lightly in your life, if you don't consider its weight, you take it lightly, then you should not expect to receive that grace at all. Instead, you should expect to receive judgment. This is the difference between these two groups of people. It isn't really about how much they gave, okay? Like there's something there for us, but that's not the point. It isn't about how much they gave. It isn't even necessarily about them being honest or dishonest about it. Like there's something there for us, but that's not the main point. No, it is about one of them taking the grace of God seriously. And it's about one of them taking the grace of God lightly. One of them knew that God was holy and they knew that he was other than him, And he knew that it was by grace and grace alone that he was even breathing in that moment. One of them had had a real encounter with the man on the cross. And he saw this God in flesh bleeding out. And he knew that it was on behalf of his sins, his unholiness, his pride, his arrogance, his lust, his greed. And he saw the holiness of God and he saw the man on the cross and he knew that the only possible way he could ever be in the presence of a God like that is if there was fantastic, great grace over his life. And he encountered that grace because he knew that God was holy and it changed his life. Jesus dying in his place. But the others considered their glory more than God's. They didn't care about God's glory. They cared about their glory. And when they stepped into the holy presence of God, they did not come with their heads bowed in repentance and awe of what Jesus had done, but they came in with their chest puffed out in pride. And their goal was to take everyone else's eyes off of the man on the cross and put their eyes on them. And God says no. He says, my church will not be about that. My church won't be about that. And we should know that if this is the path of our life, if this is the way that that we interact with the grace of God, then we should expect him to deal with us no differently. Do you know whose presence it is that you are stepping into when you come into a gathering of God's people? I hope that we do not walk into this room or walk into circles of prayer or walk into our connection groups caring more what these people think of us than the holy God of the universe that we're interacting with. I hope that he is the one we care about. I hope that he is the eyes and how he sees us, that's actually what we care about. When you pray in a group, If the goals of your prayers are to impress the people around you with your spirituality, then you should stop speaking. Do not open your mouth and feign honor and worship to God with your mouth when what you're really trying to do is impress the people around you. You should close your mouth because God is holy and you shouldn't bring your sin into his presence. 
Or maybe better than that, you should open your mouth and you should confess your sins and your pride and your hypocrisy to God and all the people around you. And when you open this Bible, this holy book that's breathed out of the mouth of God, are you opening this book to stand before Jesus, lay your face down on the ground before him and his holiness, or do you read this book so that you can go into Connection Group and impress people with how well you know God and how much you know about him? If that's what you're doing with the Bible, close it and get on your face before him and repent because that's not the right response to grace. That's a response of someone who's never experienced grace. It's a response of someone who doesn't want grace. We need this story. The early church needed it and we need it. Because it is possible that some of us would walk into these doors every single week and they would sing the songs and they would sing communion and and some of us would lift our hands and worship but while the people around us are doing these things in response to the grace of God in their lives, we're actually doing these things for ourselves. And when we lift our voices in worship, we don't do it because we love God but we do it because we love ourselves. And that our voices would be lying to God. We're saying with our mouth, you are great. But what we're really saying is, I'm great. And the people around you may never know that you're doing this. But you know. And more importantly, God knows. And he is the one you should fear. There's great grace on this place. Unbelievable grace. There's a movement that is starting and a movement that is happening. It is because Jesus Christ, the man on the cross, has been resurrected from the dead. And there's great grace sitting on this place. But there are two ways to respond to grace. One is to stand before Jesus on the cross, the holy God of the universe who emptied himself to the point of death. Not just any death, death on a cross. That was the cost of God saving you. And you would look at that man on the cross and you would recognize that you can't possibly earn your own salvation. That's why he came to die on your behalf. And so you receive that grace and you're humbled under the weight of it. Because if there was any path that you could have walked, you would have walked it, but you didn't. And so Jesus walked that path down to where you are and he died for your sins. And his blood was spilled out on the ground because that was what you deserved. And so one of the ways that you respond to that grace is you let that message absolutely shatter you. That you're not good. You're not righteous. You're not like God. You're not trying to worship him. You're in rebellion against him. You're his enemy. And yet somehow he still loved you and died for you. And you receive that grace and it changes everything about your life. But the other way to respond to grace is that you always you shield yourself from some of it. Like you let the grace of God affect part of your life, but never all of you. You never allow yourself to be completely crushed by the grace of God. You go, well, I'm not actually really that bad. I probably have some things going for me. Maybe the reason I'm in church is because I'm a little bit better than that person I walked by on the way in. You shield yourself from the man on the cross because you're never willing to completely throw yourself with all of you at his feet in reverence and awe because you want to save some of that reverence and awe for yourself. And and, and this this is what I have to say. This place, 
the church of God, it is for people who want to experience the grace of God, not use it for their own gain. If, if you're in this room, and, and I mean this as seriously as possible, if, if you're in this room and, and, and you, you view this whole thing as a way to kind of work your way up this social organization, that's the door. Please leave. Do not use the church of God like that. Because it won't end in your grace, it will end in your judgment. I'm terrified of being in a room full of people that we do the same thing, but there's something in the person's heart next to me where they're doing a totally different thing than I am. I have received the grace of Jesus. It's changed my life. Have you ever experienced the grace of Jesus like that? Has it changed your life? And this is what I want to say. If you're that person in the room today and you look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira and you go, I think that's me. What I want to say is there is great grace in this place. God hasn't dropped you dead, although he should have. And what he's doing is he's calling you out of your pride, out of your hypocrisy, into an authentic relationship with him and the people around him. He's using the story as a warning for you to say, leave behind that. Leave that way of viewing the church. And come to me, fall down at the foot of my cross, and I will give you grace, and it will change your life. It says that when this happened, the church was filled with fear. That they knew who God was. They came face to face with his holiness, and it changed the way they thought of the church. It should change the way we think of it too. Let's pray. Jesus, your grace has come to us, and this grace is great. It is beautiful. Your presence is everywhere in this room, and yet we are safe. We're not consumed by your presence. We're safe. But Jesus, that grace wasn't free. It was unbelievably costly. And so Jesus, would you teach all of us as we sit in our chairs, as we even try to respond to the grace you poured into our lives, Jesus, would you teach us what it means to make the grace of God important in our life, that we wouldn't treat it lightly, that we wouldn't trample your grace under our feet, that we wouldn't come into your presence and dance around as though this is all about us, but we would come into your presence and that our dancing would would not be so people look at us, but it would be because we have been changed by grace. Help us become that kind of church in your name. Amen.